I'm Jake Watson, and this is a special episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast where we take stories and characters from church history and immerse you in their world. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. So when I was a kid, I thought prophets were just awesome. And they are awesome. But when you grow up hearing these amazing stories about the faithfulness of Nephi, the heroics of Queen Esther, the courage of Captain Moroni, the wisdom of Mosiah, your understanding of what a prophet is and is not can become a little skewed. I grew up thinking that prophets were basically perfect. They were so righteous and constantly in tune with God that they could do no wrong. It took me a while to realize that the scriptures are basically the prophet's greatest hits album. And if we knew as much about the lives of ancient prophets as we do about the lives of modern prophets, I'm sure we'd find all kinds of flaws to complain about. But there are a lot of people in the church that believe this misconception that prophets are going to do all the right things and say all the right things all the time. But inevitably, you start to learn more about church history and leadership and you realize that they were flawed. They were human, and they made mistakes. Sometimes they even believed and taught things that simply were not true. You might find that your expectations of what you thought a prophet should be are not being met. This causes cognitive dissonance, and you have to make a choice, a decision, to try and clear that dissonance up. Many people choose to refine their paradigm of what a prophet is, and that largely resolves the dissonance. Others believe that leaving the faith is the best option for them, and that's totally fine. More than almost any other religion out there, Latter-day Saints should be okay when people decide to leave the church. After all, we still believe that they will end up somewhere in heaven. We still believe that they will be saved, though perhaps not exalted. Still, when most faiths only offer the promise of eternal pain and anguish and hell, a lesser kingdom of heaven doesn't sound bad at all. But I digress. Oftentimes, when we talk about the humanity of church leaders, we get caught up and very focused on controversial events that many people in the church attribute to their humanity, as opposed to revelation from God. For example, Adam-God theory, blood atonement, the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society, and etc. In this episode, I want to explore the humanity of past church leaders in a different way. I don't want to get super controversial, and I don't want to get into apologetics. If you're curious about the more controversial questions, there's plenty of content on our YouTube channel for you to explore. In this episode, I want to tell some stories about leaders from church history that highlight their humanity in, quite frankly, ways that I think are pretty hilarious, though sometimes perhaps a bit irreverent. We'll look at some stories of leaders flat out breaking the law, swearing from the pulpit, running from the police along with a few other shenanigans. Now, to be clear, I am not advocating for swearing from the pulpit or breaking the law. That's probably not a good idea, but frankly, I think there's something endearing to me about these stories. We should respect our church leaders, but these kinds of stories sort of remove them from that larger-than-life pedestal and bring them to a place where I can better relate to them. Perhaps we all have flaws, and sometimes we all react to situations like, well, humans. I definitely don't want to glorify their mistakes, but I do think they really show a different dimension of these characters and bring them to life in new ways. 
So, without further ado, we need to start with a quick story about Joseph Smith himself. From the Journal of Howard Corey, Howard was baptized into the church in March 1840. Soon after, he traveled to Nauvoo to meet the prophet, and then became Joseph's clerk. In that capacity, Howard had the opportunity to get to know Joseph more, and was quite impressed with how the prophet was able to manage a room. Howard wrote, The prophet had a great many callers or visitors, and he received them in his office where I was clerking, persons of almost all professions, doctors, lawyers, priests, and people seemed anxious to get a good look at what was then considered something very wonderful. A man who should dare to call himself a prophet, and announce himself as a seer and ambassador of the Lord. He was always equal to the occasion and perfectly master of the situation. I could clearly see that Joseph was the captain, no matter whose company he was in. Knowing the meagerness of his education, I was truly gratified at seeing how much at ease he always was, even in the company of the most scientific and the ready offhand manner in which he would answer their questions. But in June 1840, Howard learned firsthand about a different aspect of Joseph's personality, his affinity and talent for wrestling. The prophet and myself, after looking at his horses and admiring them that were just across the road from his house, we started thither. The prophet at the same time put his arm over my shoulder. When we had reached about the middle of the road, he stopped and remarked, Brother Corey, I wish you were a little larger. I would like to have some fun with you. I replied, Perhaps you can as it is. Not realizing what I was saying, Joseph, a man of over 200 pounds weight, while I scarcely weighed 130 pounds, made it not a little ridiculous for me to think of engaging with him in anything like a scuffle. However, as soon as I made this reply, he began to trip me. He took some kind of a lock on my right leg from which I was unable to extricate it and throwing me around, broke it some three inches above the ankle joint. He immediately carried me into the house, pulled off my boot and found at once that my leg was decidedly broken. Then he got some splinters and bandaged it. A number of times that day did he come in to see me, endeavoring to console me as much as possible. I would like to have some fun with you. Joseph Smith was a bit of a rough-and-tumble sort of guy, and clearly mistakes were made, but it sounds like Howard was a good sport about it. The subject of our next story is another contemporary of Joseph Smith. He was an early missionary and leader of the church named Parley P. Pratt. Parley joined the church in September 1830, and soon after was off on his first mission. I've thought about how best to tell Parley's story, but honestly, in his own autobiography, he tells the story better than I ever could. So, in the words of Parley himself, here's what went down. Fifty miles west of Kirtland, we had occasion to pass through the neighborhood where I first settled in the wilderness after my marriage. We found the people all excited with the news of the great work we'd been the humble instruments of doing in Kirtland and vicinity. Some wished to learn and obey the fullness of the gospel, were ready to entertain us and hear us preach. Others were filled with envy, rage, and lying. We had stopped for the night at the house of Simeon Carter, by whom we were kindly received and were in the act of reading to him and explaining the Book of Mormon when there came a knock at the door, and an officer entered with a warrant from a magistrate by the name of Byington to arrest me on a very frivolous charge. I dropped the Book of Mormon in Carter's house and went with him some two miles in a dark, muddy road. One of the brethren accompanied me. We arrived at the place of trial late in the evening, found false witnesses in attendance, and a judge who boasted of his intention to thrust us into prison for the purpose of testing the powers of our apostleship, as he called it, although I was only an elder in the church. 
The judge boasted thus, and the witnesses being entirely false in their testimony, I concluded to make no defense, but to treat the whole matter with contempt. I was soon ordered to prison, or to pay a sum of money which I had not in the world. It was now a late hour, and I was still retained in court, tantalized, abused, and urged to settle the matter, to all of which I made no reply for some time. This greatly exhausted their patience. It was near midnight. I now called on Brother Peterson to sing a hymn in the court. We sung, Oh, how happy are they. This exasperated them still more, and they pressed us greatly to settle the business by paying the money. I then observed as follows. May it please the court, I have one proposal to make for a final settlement of the things that seem to trouble you. It is this. If the witnesses who have given testimony in the case will repent of their false swearing and the magistrate of his unjust and wicked judgment and of his persecution, blackguardism and abuse, and all kneel down together, we will pray for you, that God might forgive you in these matters. My big bulldog pray for me, says the judge. The devil help us, exclaimed another. They now urged me for some time to pay the money, but got no further answer. The court adjourned, and I was conducted to a public house over the way and locked in till morning, the prison being some miles distant. In the morning, the officer appeared and took me to breakfast. This over, we sat in waiting in the inn for all things to be ready to conduct me to prison. In the meantime, my fellow travelers came past on their journey and called to see me. I told them in an undertone to pursue their journey and leave me to manage my own affairs, promising to overtake them soon. They did so. After sitting a while by the fire in charge of the officer, I requested to step out. I walked out into the public square accompanied by him. Said I, Mr. Peabody, are you good at a race? No, said he. But my big bulldog is, and he's been trained to assist me in my office these several years. He will take any man down at my bidding. Well, Mr. Peabody, you compelled me to go a mile. I have gone with you two miles. You've given me an opportunity to preach, sing, and have also entertained me with lodging and breakfast. I must now go on my journey. If you're good at a race, you can accompany me. I thank you for all of your kindness. Good day, sir. I then started on my journey, while he stood amazed and not able to step one foot before the other. Seeing this, I halted, turned to him, and again invited him to a race. He still stood amazed. I then renewed my exertions and soon increased my speed to something like that of a deer. He did not awake from his astonishment sufficiently to start in pursuit till I had gained perhaps 200 yards. I had already leaped a fence and was making my way through a field to the forest on the right of the road. He now came hallooing after me and shouting to his dog to seize me. The dog, being one of the largest I ever saw, came close on my footsteps with all his fury. The officer behind, still in pursuit, clapping his hands and hallooing, Stew boy! Stew boy! Take him! Watch! Lay hold of him, I say! Down with him! And pointing his finger in the direction I was running. The dog was fast overtaking me and in the act of leaping upon me when, quick as lightning, the thought struck me to assist the officer in sending the dog with all fury to the forest a little distance before me. I pointed my finger in that direction, clapping my hands and shouting in imitation of the officer. The dog hastened past me with redoubled speed towards the forest, being urged by the officer and myself, and both of us running in the same direction. Gaining the forest, I soon lost sight of the officer and dog and have not seen them since. 
I took a back course, crossing the road, took round into the wilderness on the left, and made the road again in time to cross a bridge over Vermilion River, where I was hailed by half a dozen men who had been anxiously waiting our arrival to that part of the country, and who urged me very earnestly to stop and preach. I told them that I could not do it, for an officer was on my track. I passed on six miles further through mud and rain and overtook the brethren, and preached the same evening to a crowded audience among whom we were well entertained. The Book of Mormon, which I dropped at the house of Simeon Carter when taken by the officer, was by these circumstances left with him. He read it with attention. It wrought deeply upon his mind, and he went fifty miles to the church we had left in Kirtland and was there baptized and ordained an elder. He then returned to his home and commenced to preach and baptize. A church of about sixty members was soon organized in the place where I had played such a trick of deception on the dog. Honestly, that is one of my favorite stories from church history of all time. I feel like it really just highlights some of the humor, tenacity, and edginess of Parley P. Pratt. And as it turns out, this wasn't even the only time he did something like this. After the Missouri-Mormon War of 1838, Joseph Smith and several other leaders spent the winter in Liberty Jail. But three other men, Parley P. Pratt, King Fullett, and Morris Phelps spent time in a Richmond, Missouri jail, and were eventually moved to a jail in Columbia, Missouri. The subject of our next story will be Morris Phelps, but in this case, we're lucky enough to also hear the story as recorded by Parley P. Pratt. Here's how Parley described the prison. The prison at Columbia was situated in the same square with the courthouse being on the north edge of the town. Between it and the wilderness where our friends held the horses in waiting, there were several fields and fences, say for the distance of half a mile, consisting of meadow and pasture land, and all in full view of the town. The prison consisted of a blockhouse two stories high, with two rooms below and two above. The keeper and his family occupied one end, and the other was used as the prison, the only entrance being through the lower room of the dwelling part, which was occupied by the family, and then up a steep flight of stairs, at the head of which was a heavy oaken door ironed, locked, and bolted as if to secure a Bonaparte or a Samson. On the inside of this was still another door, which was but slender, with a square hole near the top, of sufficient size to hand in the food and dishes of the prisoners. The large, heavy door had always to be opened when food, drink, or other articles were handed in, and while open, the inner door served as a temporary guard to prevent prisoners from escaping, and was not always opened on such occasions, the food being handed through the hole in the door, while the door itself remained locked. However, as a fortunate circumstance for us, the coffee pot, when filled, would not easily slip through the hole in the door, and rather than spill the coffee and burn his fingers, the keeper would sometimes unlock and open the inner door in order to set in this huge and obstinate pot, and once in, the door would immediately close and the key be turned, while the outside door would perhaps stand open till the supper was finished and the dishes handed out. Now, our whole chance of escape depended on the question whether the inner door would be opened that evening or the coffee pot squeezed in at the hole in the top. It being the 4th of July, the men obtained a long pole from the jailkeeper, on which they hung a makeshift flag. The body of the flag was made of a shirt. Then the men pieced together bits of red cloth to form an eagle in the word liberty. Of course, the townspeople out celebrating the 4th of July noticed the irony of prisoners celebrating liberty. 
But little did they know that the prisoner's title of liberty was also a proclamation of their intentions for that evening. Parley continued, The citizens of the town were now some of them gathering in small groups outside of their doors to enjoy the quiet of a summer evening, to smoke a cigar or chat over the merits of the celebration while others were on horseback to enjoy an evening's ride or to return to their homes. Bands of music, or rather an occasional beat of a drum or blast of the bugle was still to be heard in the distance, while a few soldiers, or rather militia in uniform, were hurrying to and fro. Groups of boys were playing about the square, and last though not least, our flag was still on high, with liberty and the eagle in bold colors waving to the night breeze. This had so attracted the attention of the little fellows that once and again they begged of us to make them a present of it but we told them that we could not spare it till the next morning. The fact is, we were not willing to surrender our castle before the time, or till we made good our retreat. The sun was now setting, and the footsteps of the old keeper were heard on the stairs. The key turned, the outer door grated on its huge hinges, while at the same moment we sprang upon our feet, hats and coats on, rather an unusual dress for a hot day in July, for by the by, my hat proved to be a fur cap which I wore when first taken in November previous, and stood by the door to act the part of waiters in receiving the dishes and food for supper and placing them on the table. Dish after dish was handed through the small aperture in the door, and duly received and placed upon the table by us, with as much grace and as calm countenances as if we thought of nothing else but our suppers. And I will not venture to say that famished men never watched the movements of a coffee pot with more anxiety than we did on this occasion. At length, the other dishes all being handed in, the huge pot made its appearance in the hole in the top of the door. But one of us cried out to the keeper, Colonel, you will only spill the coffee by attempting to put it through. Besides, it burns our fingers. It will be more convenient to unlock and hand it in at the door. With this, it was lowered down again and the key turned on the inner door. In this, as in most other fields of battle where liberty and life depend on the issue, everyone understood the part assigned to him and exactly fulfilled it. Mr. Follett was to give the door a sudden pull and fling it wide open the moment the key was turned. Mr. Phelps, being well skilled in wrestling, was to press out foremost and come in contact with the jailer. I was to follow in the center and Mr. Follett, who held the door, was to bring up the rear. No sooner was the key turned than the door was seized by Mr. Follett with both hands and with his foot placed against the wall he soon opened a passage, which was in the same instant filled by Mr. Phelps and followed by myself and Mr. Follett. The old jailer strode across the way and stretched out his arms, but all to no purpose. One or two leaps brought us to the bottom of the stairs, carrying the old gentleman with us headlong, helter-skelter. Old Mrs. Gibbs looked on in silent amazement, while the jailer's wife not only assisted in the scuffle, but cried out so loud that the town was soon alarmed. In the meantime, we found ourselves in the open air in front of the prison and in full view of the citizens who had already commenced to rally, while Mr. Phelps and the jailer still clinched fast hold of each other like two mastiffs. However, in another instant he cleared himself and we were all three scampering off through the fields towards the thicket. By this time the town was all in motion. 
The quietness of the evening was suddenly changed into noise and bustle, and it was soon evident that the thrilling scene of the great drama of the 4th of July and of the Columbian celebration of liberty were yet to be enacted. The street on both sides of the fields where we were running were soon thronged with soldiers in uniform, mounted riflemen, footmen with French stakes, clubs or with whatever came to hand, and with boys, dogs, etc., all running, rushing, screaming, swearing, shouting, bawling, and looking while clouds of dust rose behind them. The cattle also partook of the general panic and ran bellowing away as if to hide from the scene. The fields behind us also presented a similar scene. Fences were leaped or broken down with a crash. Men, boys, and horses came tumbling over hedge and ditch, rushing with the fury of a whirlwind in the chase. But we kept our course for the thicket, our toes barely touching the ground, while we seemed to leap with the fleetness of a deer, or as the young heart upon the mountains. Our friends who had stood waiting in the thicket had watched the last rays of the sun as they faded away, and had observed the quiet stillness of the evening as it began to steal over the distant village where we were confined and had listened with almost breathless anxiety for the first sound which was to set all things in commotion, and which would say to them in language not to be misunderstood that the struggle had commenced. For some moments after the last golden beam had disappeared, they listened in vain. The occasional lowing of a cow as she came home from the woodland pasture, impatient for her calf and the milkmaid to ease her of her rich burthen the mingled sound of human voices in the distance in common conversation, the merry laugh of the young beau and their sweethearts, the quiet song of the whippoorwill, mingled with the merry notes of the violin, the thrill of the bugle, or the soft and plaintive notes of the flute, stole upon the silence of the evening and were occasionally interrupted by the clatter of hooves, as a few of the citizens were retiring from the enjoyments of a public day to their own peaceful homes in the country. These and the bleedings of their anxious and almost bursting hearts were the only sounds which fell upon their ear, till suddenly they heard a rumbling and a confused noise. These and the beatings of their anxious and almost bursting hearts were the only sounds which fell upon their ear, till suddenly they heard a rumbling and confused noise, as of footsteps rushing down the stairs of a prison, then a shrill cry of alarm, soon followed by the shouts and rush of men, dogs, horses, and prisoners towards the spot where they were located. They sprang forward to the edge of the fields and ran back again to their horses, and again returned as if the using of their own limbs would serve to add nimbleness to those of the prisoners and to quicken their speed. As soon as the prisoners drew near, they were hailed by their friends and conducted to the horses. They were breathless and nearly ready to faint, but in a moment they were assisted to mount, and a whip and the reins placed in their hands, while the only words interchanged were, Fly, quickly they are upon you. Which way shall we go? Where you can, you are already nearly surrounded. But what will you do? They will kill you if they cannot catch us. We will take care of ourselves. Fly, fly, I say instantly. These words were exchanged with the quickness of thought, while we were mounting and reining our horses. In another instant, we were all separated from each other, and each one was making the best shift he could for his own individual safety. Now, at this point in the story, the escapees split up. Every man for himself. If you want to read about what happened to each of the men, check out Parley P. Pratt's autobiography. Parley makes an extraordinarily narrow escape. King Follett was quite a bit older than the other fugitives, and was unfortunately recaptured. But while I find this whole story fascinating and entertaining, 
It's the deceptive escape of Morris Phelps that I really wanted to include in this episode. So let's get back to Parley's record of what happened to Morris after the men split up. At the time we were separated in the heat of the pursuit, Mr. Phelps made his escape much in the same manner as myself. He was at first closely pursued, but at length he outdistanced them all, and once out of their sight, he struck directly into the road and rode on toward Illinois. He had proceeded a few miles on his way when he was suddenly surrounded in the darkness of the night by a company of horsemen who were out in pursuit of the prisoners. They immediately hailed him and cried out, Say, stranger, gosh dang you, what's your name? He replied in the same rough and careless manner, You damned rascals, what's yours? On finding he could damn them as well as themselves, they concluded he could not be a Mormon, while his bold and fearless manner convinced them that he was not a man who was fleeing for his life. They then begged his pardon for the rough manner in which they had accosted him. Oh, you're one of the real breed, by gosh. No damn Mormon could counterfeit that language, you swear real natural. Hurrah for old Kentuck. Oh, but where might you live, stranger? He replied. Just up here, you might have knowed me, and then again you mountain. I think I seen y'all a heap of times, but I've been so damn drunk at the Fourth of Independence I hardly know myself or anybody else, but hurrah for old Kentuck. And what about the damn Mormons? What about him? Egad, you'd have known that without axing if you'd have seen him run. Well, what, I, they're, they're not out of prison, are they? Out of prison, yes, the damn rascals raised a flag of liberty in open day and burst out, and downstairs, right in the midst of the public celebration, out wrestling the damn jailer, and out running the whole town in a fair foot race. They reached the timber just as they were overtaken, but before we could catch them, they mounted their nags, and the way they cleared was a caution to Crockett. We took one of them, and see the other two a few feet distant, rushing their nags at full speed, but we couldn't catch them, nor shoot them either. I raised my new Kentucky rifle, fresh loaded and primed with a good percussion, and taking fresh aim at one of their heads only a few yards distant, I fired, but the damn cap burst, and the powder wouldn't burn. Well, now, stranger, that's a mighty big story and seems any most impossible. Did you say you caught one of them? Why, I'd have thought you'd have killed him on the spot. What have you done with him? They took him back to prison, I suppose. Uh, but it was only the old one. If it had been one of them other chaps, we would have skinned him as quick as Crockett would have coon and then eaten him alive without leaving a grease spot. This interview over, the horseman withdrew and left Phelps to pursue his way in peace. Now, while we're on the subject of harsh language, I'd be remiss not to talk about a legendary Latter-day Saint leader who eventually came to be known as the Swearing Apostle, Jonathan Golden Kimball. Now, if you look J. Golden Kimball up on Wikipedia, which normally I would never direct you to Wikipedia to learn about the church, but anyway, if you look him up on Wikipedia, you'll read that J. Golden Kimball is considered one of the most colorful and beloved of the church's general authorities. And honestly, I think there's a correlation between those two attributes, colorful and beloved. I think he was so beloved because he was so colorful. The more humanizing traits he often put on display for the public, in a way endeared him to that public. And I agree, I think some of these stories about Jay Gold and Kimball are endearing, though also somewhat surprising and hilarious at the same time. 
So a couple of things you should know before we jump into a few of these stories. First, though Jay Golden Kimball is known as the swearing apostle, he was never actually a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He was a member of the First Council of the Seventy between 1892 and 1938. Second, the source I'm going to be drawing from for these stories is a book called The J. Golden Kimball Stories by Eric A. Eliason. J. Golden Kimball has been a Latter-day Saint history legend for a long time, and because of his reputation, I'm sure some stories have been embellished or are perhaps just hearsay. So as you listen to these stories, understand that while they may reflect some of J. Golden Kimball's more humanizing traits, the stories sit fairly comfortably in the realm of Latter-day Saint folklore. In the words of Henry Eyring, the father of Henry B. Eyring, who is currently in the First Presidency of Our Faith, many times men of importance have attributed to them things they never said. I think that J. Golden Kimball, if he said all of the things he was said to have said, he'd have had to talk even more than he did. So take that for what it's worth. Put it in your back pocket as we have some fun with several of these quick stories. J. Golden Kimball was examining a hat in ZCMI. When a clerk approached him, he asked the price. The clerk replied, $10. Whereupon Brother Kimball started to look inside the hat, pulling back the band. The clerk, confused by his close inspection, inquired, What are you looking for? Without looking up, Brother Kimball responded, Holes. Holes? questioned the now utterly confused clerk. Yes, said Brother Kimball, for the ears of the jackass who would pay $10 for this hat. Another story highlights a very human and humorous response to temptation. When Heber J. Grant called for the church to live the word of wisdom more faithfully, Jay Golden's wife would no longer allow him to fix his coffee at home. Jay Golden would sneak to downtown Salt Lake to a couple of different restaurants and have a cup of coffee. One time, while he was sitting in a back booth near the restrooms, a lady spied him and confronted him, saying, Is that you, Elder Kimball, drinking coffee? Jay Golden replied, Ma'am, you are the third person today who has mistaken me for that old SOB. The next story contains a bit of bathroom humor, which may or may not be your cup of tea, but I thought it was pretty funny, so here goes. Jay Golden Kimball and some other brethren were at a meeting to determine how the church budget should be allocated. The meeting dragged on and on about trivial matters, and Jay Golden was getting very annoyed. When it was proposed that the church provide funds to help build a bridge over the Jordan River, Elder Kimball exclaimed, We don't need to waste our money on this project. Hell, I could pee halfway across the Jordan River. Except pee was not exactly the word he used. Elder Stephen L. Richards replied, Elder Kimball, you are out of order. I know I am, and if I weren't, I could pee all the way across. This next story. I'm not quite sure what to say about this story, but I thought it was funny, so enjoy. Brother Kimball was out on his ranch, separating out the best of his calves to pay his tithing. He would isolate the desired animals from the rest of the herd and then turn around to open the gate to let them out of the field. But when he would turn around, the calves would be back in the herd. The same occurrence would happen several other times exactly as it happened the first time. Finally, Brother Kimball lost his temper and shouted, Satan, if you do this one more time, I'll give the whole damn herd to the Lord. Brother Kimball proceeded as before, separating the best calves for the bishop's storehouse. But when he turned around after opening the gate, the calves were still separate and Golden could pay his tithing. In this next story, if it's true, you really start to see some of Jay Golden's bluntness come out, perhaps to a fault. But the story has some great shock value. 
Jay Golden Kimball was asked to go as a general authority to take care of a problem in a particular ward. Before the ward sacrament meeting, he met with some members who explained that the Relief Society president had such a domineering personality that she basically dictated everything that happened in church and told everyone what to do. But everyone was so afraid of the self-righteous busybody that they did not know what to do to stop her, including the bishop. Elder Kimball said he'd think and pray about the matter and make an announcement when he spoke at the meeting. During his talk, he gave an analogy. Sometimes, if you are not careful, you can sit down on bad wood and get a really painful splinter in your ass. And there is nothing you can do about it except have someone pull it out for you because you can't. This is exactly what has happened here. Sister so-and-so has become a big splinter in this ward's ass, and I have come to take her out for you. All of those in favor of releasing Sister so-and-so as Relief Society president, please make manifest by raising your right hand. And that's how they released her. And the lady was so shocked by Elder Kimball's choice of words that she did not object. This last short Jay Golden Kimball story actually comes from Hugh B. Brown, a past counselor in the First Presidency. Golden Kimball came down to our conference in Granite Stake. I introduced him as the Will Rogers of the church. I said, he likes a joke. When he got up, he said, I think the Lord himself likes a joke. If he didn't, he wouldn't have made some of you folks. The next story comes from Brett London's blog, The London Edition. And to give you a hint at what this story is about, the title of the blog post is Uncle Ted Tickets the Prophet. The title is pretty self-explanatory. Brett's great-uncle Ted was a highway patrolman in Utah, and one of his rules was that nobody would get out of a ticket because of who they were. The president of the church at the time was David O. McKay, who apparently had quite the reputation for driving. Well, let's just say, fast. Brett writes, Uncle Ted patrolled the canyons east of Ogden where David O. McKay lived. It was only a matter of time before the honest cop and the speeding prophet would connect. It was like the proverbial irresistible force colliding with the immovable object. So, one day Officer Ted caught President McKay speeding. Ted flipped on the lights of his patrol car and pulled the prophet over. I pulled you over because you were speeding, Ted explained. License and registration. David O. McKay responded, have you forgotten who I am? Of course not, Ted responded. You are David O. McKay, prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you were speeding. License and registration. Decades later, when I confirmed this family lore, I told Ted, I can't believe you gave the prophet a ticket. It's good he didn't hold a grudge. Ted responded, What do you mean he didn't hold a grudge? His secretary telephoned me a few days later and said that President McKay wanted to see me in his office in Salt Lake the following week. Ted continued, As I walked into church headquarters, a couple of general authorities recognized me and teased. I hear you gave the prophet a ticket. What do you mean he didn't hold a grudge? He sat me down in his office and called me as bishop. Now, we're going to start wrapping this episode up, but before we do, I wanted to talk about one honorable mention. It's a funny story that you may have heard in General Conference a few years ago. But seeing as how the person involved was only a young child at the time, we figured it didn't quite fit with the rest of the stories we've just been listening to. But it's still a fun one. So here's what went down in the words of the late President Thomas S. Monson. Many of us, however, learn through experience the wisdom of being obedient. 
When I was growing up each summer from early July until early September, my family stayed at our cabin at Vivian Park in Provo Canyon in Utah. One of my best friends during those carefree days in the canyon was Danny Larson, whose family also owned a cabin at Vivian Park. Each day, he and I roamed this boy's paradise, fishing in the stream and the river, collecting rocks and other treasures, hiking, climbing, and simply enjoying each minute of each hour of each day. One morning, Danny and I decided we wanted to have a campfire that evening with all of our canyon friends. We just needed to clear an area in a nearby field where we could all gather the June grass which covered the field, which had become dry and prickly, making the field unsuitable for our purposes. We began to pull the tall grass, planning to clear a large circular area. We tugged and yanked with all of our might, but all we could get were small handfuls of the stubborn weeds. We knew this task would take the entire day, and already our energy and enthusiasm was waning. were waning. And then what I thought was the perfect solution came into my eight-year-old mind. I said to Danny, all we need to do is to set these weeds on fire. <laughs> we'll just burn a circle in the weeds. <laughs> he readily agreed. <laughs> and I ran to our cabin to get a few matches. <laughs> Lest any of you think that at the tender age of eight we were permitted to use matches, I want to make it clear both Dandy and I were forbidden to use them. <laughs> without adult supervision. Both of us have been warned repeatedly of the dangers of fire. However, I knew where my family kept the matches. <laughs> and we needed to clear that field. Without so much as a second thought, I ran to our cabin and grabbed a few matchsticks, making certain no one was watching. I hid them quickly in one of my pockets. Back to Danny, I ran, excited that in my pocket I had the solution to our problem. I recall thinking that the fire would burn only as far as we wanted. and then would somehow magically extinguish itself. <laughs> I struck a match on a rock and set the parched gin grass ablaze. It ignited as though it had been drenched in gasoline. <clears throat> At first, Danny and I were thrilled. We watched the weeds disappear. But it soon became apparent that the fire was not about to go out on its own. We panicked, and we realized there was nothing we could do to stop it. The menacing flames began to follow the wild grass of the mountainside, endangering the pine trees and everything else in their path. Finally, we had no option but to run for help 
Soon, all available men and women of Vivian Park were dashing back and forth with wet burlap bags, beating at the flames in an attempt to extinguish them. After several hours, the last remaining embers were smothered. The ages old pine trees had been saved, as were the homes the flames would eventually have reached. Danny and I learned several difficult but important lessons that day. <laughs> Not the least of which was the importance of obedience. There are rules. And there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed some of these stories. I hope you got a good chuckle out of them. Clearly, these individuals all had their flaws. These stories surely highlighted some of their more tame flaws or shenanigans that resulted in some entertaining stories. But if God can use flawed tools like these to bring about his purposes, that gives me hope that in some way, maybe God can use me too. And if God can be patient with the flaws of the mortal men he calls to the work, then maybe I can extend some of that same grace to them as well, both past and present. Thanks for listening. If you've read about any funny stories from church history that we didn't cover in this episode, feel free to share them in the comments. And thank you for accompanying me on this journey. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on this special episode of the Saints and Scripted podcast where we take stories and characters from church history and immerse you in their world. This series is executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Special thanks to David Snell for writing this episode as well as voicing characters along with Taylor Jorgensen and the assistance of Tyson Boardman for music and sound effects procurement. <laughs>